John 2.12. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found the people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus said. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The Word of God. All right. Pressure. So, uh, as, as great a day as it is to feel appreciated as a pastor, uh, I have something to top it. So it was actually uh, 40 years today, October 27th, 1979, that my wife and I stood at front of a church like this, cared for us, and um, 40 years later, we're still together. You know? yeah. Yeah, so we, we celebrate our 40th today. And we were two very imperfect people, and we still are, who uh, uh, did that. And we made these commitments to each other. And uh, they've, they've carried us through thick and thin. And so uh, a lot of life. <sighs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, uh, this is one of my favorite quotes about marriage. He says that, it's not really about marriage, it's about community, but I'm using it for marriage because it really, really applies. He says, you don't get to love the ideal person. You get to love the real person in front of you. And there's a big difference between the two, as you know, if you've been married more than 10 minutes, right? <laughs> and Well, no, it's true. It's a great quote. And um, we have loved, learned to love the real, the real person in our marriage. And it's risky. The Bible, um, something that... Uh, the Bible would say is that you shouldn't trust fully any human being. I mean, we're going to look at a little bit of that today, how Jesus would not entrust himself to people. And it's it's just good biblical uh, theology that you are to trust God alone fully, and then you do this sort of regulation of trust uh, based on, you know, uh, people's character. But the one exception to that is marriage. In the marriage relationship where the two become one, the ideal and this, what we would strive for is a total, it's a total trust relationship. That's the bar that's set for us. So I want to just say that about marriage. And um, Patty and I have full trust in each other. And um, she's wonderful. And we're going to celebrate. And uh, you don't get to hear about that. How's that? 
Um, we're going to focus on Jesus this morning, and I hope that's okay with you. We're going to focus on Jesus, and in this series, we're particularly focusing on how Jesus handled expectations in life, because we have a lot of expectations from people that are put upon us. And as we watch Jesus, we notice that he is able to uh, navigate that really, really well. And the Holy Spirit's job, reminding you, uh, is to get us to be more like Jesus, to conform us, not to the expectations of people around us, but to conform us to the image of Christ, is how the Bible puts it. So that's the Holy Spirit's job. And I want to I quote from a very unlikely source, but... One of my favorite humorists is Irma Bombeck. Yeah, yeah. Guess what I'm going to say right now. It's going to be funny, right? Yeah. Well, Irma, uh, she, she says this, that, well, she's gone now, but she said at one time that some food, when you see it, it makes you fat. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Some food, when you see it, it makes you fat. It has this effect on you. And that is a, is a humorous way of saying what the Bible would say is that when you see the person of Jesus Christ, it changes you. You, you, you see him. So we want to see Jesus this morning. And I'm going to come back to that quote a little later, but I love that quote. Um, we're going to look at uh, temple expectations uh, Messiah expectations, and then we'll come back to Jesus and us. In this passage, um, the the temple authorities, I, I, I hurt my back this week, so I'm going to do a little sitting today. Is that okay with you guys? You guys are all sitting, so you better say so. Yeah, hypocrites. You know. um, um, the expectation from the temple authorities was that Jesus would go along with, their expectations of him would be that he would become, you know, kind of part of that temple scene, uh, the establishment of uh, religious life around the temple. And um, Jesus thrashes that expectation, if you listen to the text. And so I want to give you what might have been going on inside of Jesus uh, or some good, what we would call temple theology. And this is, this is, Uh, been said by many others, but the idea of the temple begins in the Garden of Eden. So how far back is that in your Bible? It's right there at the beginning. That the garden was a temple. It was a temple garden, meaning that it was the place where God's presence was most intensely experienced or manifested. He created the whole earth. He filled the whole earth with his presence in a sense. But if you wanted to experience God, it was in the Garden of Eden. And um, so the, the idea is that that's the, the creation begins with a story in this temple garden. And then it, you know, the plot thickens as the, the people are put out of that garden and they're out into the world. And now they've got to figure out for themselves or who is God. And, and God has a way of answering that question. And he chooses a temple nation. And that temple nation is called Israel. And they are to manifest God's presence and the experience of God to the whole of creation, to all of the other nations in the world, all the other people in the world. And at the, the symbol of that within Israel is called the temple, this physical temple that was built. And that is where you would go to worship God, and that's where you would go to make sacrifices to God, to get right with God. 
And part of that um, part of that temple area, which we hear about in the text here, is what's called the outer courts. And those courts were there as a reminder to Israel. They're called the courts of the Gentiles, meaning all who aren't Jewish or Israelite. That's where they can come and get a taste to see what God is like, the living and holy. So that's the, that's the point of that court of the Gentiles. So Jesus, now back to the text, Jesus walks into the area and it's filled with, uh, think of a street fair or whatever comes to your mind, and there's, there's tables there with merchants selling sacrifices that, um, at any rate, there's no room for the, the purposes, the expectations of God for what that area were, be, were, were to be like are very different from the expectations of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus has, what are you, I don't know what you call it. He has a, he makes a scene. How's that? He makes a scene. He turns over the temple or the, the tables in the temple area. And he uh, Very upsetting to him to see something that was intended for uh, the Gentile nations to come and and participate in the worship of God, and they're not able to even get in there. So uh, that's what happens. God has different expectations. Oh, Oh. (laughs) gee, (laughs) thank you. Can I get one that's heated? (laughs) Yeah. So um, then there's this confrontation with the authorities, and uh, this is, um, they're expecting him to act a certain way. He doesn't act that way. And they basically are saying to him, now just think about this in your life, when an authority has said something like this to you, who do you think you are? And I don't know about you, but I can remember my principal in third grade saying something like that to me, and it doesn't, I kind of sink, you know, like, I'm nothing. What do you mean? I don't think I'm anything. I don't feel like I'm anything. So Jesus has this authority saying, who do you think you are coming in here and doing that? And yet he doesn't seem to have any of that insecurity that would be part of uh, most of our experiences when the authorities come and correct us. And they say to him, um, uh, well, and he says, well, if you destroy this temple, uh, I will rebuild it in, well, how many days? Three days, right? And they are kind of like smirking, I would think, think saying, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And so you have this conversation that goes something like this. In 40 years of marriage, I know what that feels like. <laughs> Just kind of go like that, pass each other. But Jesus has a deeper level of, uh, of, of meaning when he talks about that. What is he talking about the temple now? He's talking about his body. So basically he's saying, I am the temple. I'm the new temple. I'm the true temple of Israel. Destroy this body, this temple, and it will be raised up on the third day, which is a, uh, um, what do you call it, a prophecy relating to his coming death and resurrection. Of course, they don't understand. Isn't it amazing? I want you to, I'm going to, I'm going to probably say it a lot. I hope I do. Isn't it amazing how Jesus can say certain things that nobody else could say, and they just seem to fit who he is? So if anybody else, if I were to tell you, I am the true temple, you know, uh, destroy this, and I will raise it up in three days, you would say, 
you're either really, really proud and boastful or you're really, really nuts. Because that just doesn't make any sense. So just, but when Jesus says it, you know, as we hear it at least, it just, oh, of course. You know, and it doesn't sound like he's boasting or, or proud or, or nuts. Uh, He's he just, it's coming out of, out of his person. Uh, beautiful thing about Jesus. I want you to appreciate Jesus. Don't, don't you appreciate Jesus? I mean, it's, I mean it's, even if you're not a believer yet, you, you, know, you start to look at him and you see him more clearly and you, you start to respect him. And when you respect him, you're just an inch away from believing and trusting him. So the beauty of Jesus comes through in this uh, section of scripture for us. Well, can you think of a time in your life when God hasn't met your expectations? I mean, be honest here, because it's part of walking with God. Everybody in Scripture would say, yeah, I can think of a lot of times. I mean, David or whoever your heroes in Scripture might be, I can think of a lot of times when God didn't meet my expectations. And I want to argue, uh, we'll see it here more clearly in a second, that's, that's a good thing. If he always met our expectations, we'd be in big trouble. And, of course, he wouldn't be God. I mean, that's not the way he functions. So, um, but let's go into that a little bit more clearly. So the, the temple expectations, and now we have the Messiah expectations that come next. And um, it, this is in verse 23. This is, I think, one of the more interesting and, uh, I would say, underrated. Uh, I don't hear this talked about very often, this part of Scripture. But it says that now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, so Jerusalem would swell uh, during these festivals from a, a population of maybe 50,000 people to maybe 300,000. I mean, they, the Jews would come from all over and, and Gentiles would come too, like I said earlier, to the courts of the Gentiles. Um, but they would come to celebrate the Passover feast, which was uh, when, to celebrate when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. And they would do that once a year. So it, 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 it's during that time, during that, that week-long uh, celebration of the Passover. And many people saw the signs that Jesus was performing and believed in his name. So we would think, wow, there's all these people, thousands of people. Think, this is really cool. Jesus is getting to be popular. Things are, there's momentum. Things are happening. And we, maybe the disciples would say, are, are on the cutting edge of that movement. And yet inside of Jesus, when all of that's happening, you get the sense, we'll, we'll read verse 24 here in a second, but you get the sense that he's not comfortable with that. Do you love that about Jesus or not? I mean, I kind of love it. I mean, how many people do you know that as they get more popular, they're not, they're not good with that inside themselves? I don't know many people like that. I don't know any politicians like that. Let me put it that way. I mean, this is really unique in terms of the history of people. And we can say that at least John is trying to say to us from his gospel that Jesus knows we don't know how long he has known this, at what point he knew it, but it's that Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified. And that no matter how many thousands or millions of people believe in him, when it comes down to the end, he's going to be by himself. Pretty much alone. Crucified. So, you know, he's not, he's not impressed by the headlines. 
And um, the reason they're following him is because he's been doing miracles. He's been meeting their expectations for what a Messiah should do. And I think the scriptures would tell us that miracles are, are faith-based. Faith that's based on miracles is a pretty shallow faith. Thousands of people that believe in Jesus because of the miracles that he's doing. And where will they be later in his life? W.H. Um, Auden is a poet, a British poet. Interesting life. I won't go into the details, but if you're curious, you can look that up. And he is extremely circumspect and um, honest, brutally honest about himself as he's thinking about these things. So I'm going to give you a couple of quotes and maybe this will help us understand this passage. I believe because Jesus, he, fulfills none of my dreams because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. I believe in Jesus because of him being the opposite of what he would be if I could make him. You see, my expectations of Messiah, uh, I wouldn't want that kind of God. It's, he's being very honest and circumspect. He's standing back and looking at the realities of his own heart and realizing that it wouldn't be good. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, I'm kind of trying to get at what, what's going on here with all these crowds that love Jesus so much, or at least love his miracles so much. Now this one, takes us a little bit further. Uh, But why not one of the other great teachers like Buddha or Muhammad? Why not believe in them? And he says, because none of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. Why would you say crucify him to Buddha with his wisdom or to Muhammad with his strength? Why would you say that? And something in Jesus, something in Jesus that caused crowds, and don't think that if you were there, you would have been any different than the rest of the crowds because expectations get, there's this group think that happens and people get on, caught up in the moment. All of them shouting, crucify him. Basically saying, you're not meeting my expectations for what a Messiah could be. Well, in verse 24, Jesus sort of makes that Understanding it helps us more deeply. He would not entrust himself to them. So the, the, the Greek word entrust is, is pretty close to the one used earlier. They believed him, meaning they entrusted him, but he would not entrust himself to them. And what is it? What, I mean, why would Jesus not? And he says to anyone, he would not entrust himself to anyone. And uh, maybe our poet friend there gives us the reasons why, but Another poet, George Herbert, says, he, meaning God, sees the heart and we see the faces. It's so true, isn't it? We see the, I see your faces, but I can't see your hearts. And God sees right into our hearts. And when Jesus sees into the hearts of all these people who entrust him, what does he see? It's not pretty. And I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, it's a good question to ask ourselves. Am I glad or sad that he doesn't entrust me Totally. This gets back to what it means to be the two becoming one in marriage. Do we, we have total trust with each other? Can Jesus totally trust me? I totally trust him, but can he totally trust me? Okay, so just play with that a little bit. 
What if Jesus had done more miracles, more miracles in Jerusalem, and everybody believed? It was so spectacular that even the Jewish authorities believed. He met everybody's expectations. Everybody's happy. He never gets killed. (laughs) Of course, no one gets saved then, but you see how it works? I mean, if God were just there to meet our expectations. What if Frodo had fallen in love with this little ring? He would be in the image of Gollum. My precious. I love to say that. <laughs> My precious. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. But you see what it does to us, this, this popularity power thing. And Jesus wouldn't go there. Don't you just love Jesus? I mean, don't you see how much we need him? Well, let's, let's go there with us and... Um, Let's see, let's just, let's, I'll do my best to think about how, who Jesus is in relationship to us and what we struggle with today. And so we have this pressure in our lives and we have anxiety, having some anxiety in our lives. Is that a good thing? You know, if we could measure it, it doesn't seem to be going down. And um, we notice about Jesus that he doesn't have anxiety. I mean, I would, let me just try to make the case that he doesn't. That last week when we saw him at the, uh, with, the woman, uh, with his mother at, at the wedding, and she's all anxious that they're running out of uh, wine, and Jesus just sort of changes the water into wine. With, it, you don't have anxiety in him. It's just kind of coming out of who he is. He's not trying to prove himself. It's just what he does. And then he is angry about these tables being in the courts, uh, the courtyard of the Gentiles at the temple, but you don't sense this anxiety about it. In fact, when he debriefs on his, his activity with the leaders, he's just pretty confident in who he is, non-anxious presence, just seems to be Jesus. And here, as he says that he doesn't trust his heart to people, because of what's in them. It's just, it just seems like he's the same person wherever he goes, and we'll see that more as we go on. That, that he's, when, when you're, you're anxious, it's usually a lot of times because you're trying to please all these different people, and you're in different settings in your life, and Jesus, you just see him wherever he is, he's the same Jesus. It, he, he treats people differently based on the situation, but it's still always him that comes out. Don't you love that? I mean, I, I just think that's really cool to have somebody in your life that you know that has that kind of uh, presence. And um, just, I, I heard this story about Mrs. Holderness. I have no idea who she is, but, it, you know, I love the story. That a journalist came to her on her 103rd birthday, so, you know, 103rd birthday, and asked her, Mrs. Holderness, what is the one thing, what's the best thing about being 103? And she said, no peer pressure. (laughs) No peer pressure. Yeah. As Jesus is himself, he doesn't seem to be contorted or anxious by the expectations of other people around him. Okay, so there, there's that thing about Jesus that I, I, I think, oh, I'd want that. I want more of that in my life. I want that for my children. But how do you get that? And this has to do with um, 
uh, it's really a big word today, I get it, and it, it should be, it's the word identity. So it's, it's being able to answer that question of who you are in a, in a clear way. And um, uh, Jesus has it. He has it in full measure. He has low anxiety because he has high identity. And there's a huge debate going on right now in our culture, and I don't, I, I, because I look for it and I read about it, I see it everywhere, and yet it's never really called this huge debate in our culture, but here it is. It's between those who would say your identity is based on, on the construct that you make of yourself. In other words, you're, you're, you're uh, I'm slipping and sliding here, Bill, I'm gonna, yeah. Um, it, your identity is, is um, you, you construct it, you make it, you, you brand yourself. Um, you, with social media, it's, it's more obvious, I guess, than it was before that, but it's always been there, this idea that you, you don't, it's not something that you just receive from someplace. It's, it's that you're a human being, and therefore you, you make uh, your identity and then you live from that persona, I guess you'd say. So there's that argument, and there's a lot of voices that are speaking for that argument, and then there's the other, which is the one that is, uh, you are given an identity, and it's received, and it, the, the places that you might receive it from would be your family, uh, society, uh, culture that you grew up in, and all the varieties of that, but also uh, from God, right? So it's not something that you invent. Uh, and which group, I mean, let's just say, if you had to think, which, which one, the first or the second one, is going to have lower anxiety? It takes a lot of anxiety to create yourself. And to receive, you know, you just receive. It, it takes receiving. And the idea is, okay, now, which, which did Jesus use? Did Jesus create his identity? Or did he receive his identity? It's pretty clear. He did not create his identity. There's no evidence of that in Scripture. There's a lot of evidence received his identity, primarily from God, but maybe from his family of origin, which, hey, that's a good thing. That's from God, too. And from the culture, he was very Jewish, you know, that, that, that whole thing, and, and he received things there. But primarily, he received his identity from God. This is... This is the argument here that I'm trying, this is so critical. If you want low anxiety, I, high identity from God is the key for yourself, for your family, for your scripture, or from your, for your, whatever. It's, it's just, this is so uh, important. When I see people who are super anxious, <clears throat> this is what I don't see. What I see is a lot of trying to create identity from themselves or seeking identity from places that are not as solid um, so, Jesus received his identity from his father who said to him, you are my son who I am well pleased. You are the son I love who I am well pleased with. <clears throat> he heard it twice at least at his baptism and again two years into his ministry roughly at uh, what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard that voice from heaven saying pretty much the same words. Plus, who, how many beyond that? Maybe every time he prayed the Lord's Prayer, our Father, those words were in there, those were assumed. You are my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. It's so important. 
So how do we get that sense of identity? How do we answer clearly, who am I? Um, How do I... Maybe whose am I? Is that a better question? If we receive it instead of have to create it? Whose am I? And who do I give... This this is a question for all of us, regardless of where we are. Who do I give permission to to answer the question of who I am? Who would you give permission to? Who's totally trustworthy to answer that? Yourself? Other people? God? Is he totally trustworthy? There's two ways to come at this, and I'll close with this. The first is through your ears. To hear through your ears those words, uh, there's many words in Scripture, but words like, you are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Those are intended for you as in baptism. I get, where next week we're going to have a baptism. You'll get, that's, that's part of that. You are a new creation. You are to die for. You are worth so much. These are the words of God to you that help shape identity in you. Identity jumps off the paper of scripture into, it gets embedded in your soul. It has an effect on you. So that's, that's the audible. And then there's the visual, and this is back to what Irma Bombeck said. Remember what she said about, there's some food, when you just look at it, it has this effect on you. Yeah. So back to Christ, looking at Christ. This is what the scripture says, that when you see Christ, you become more like him. You become changed by him. Last week, we talked about this idea of, of Christ's identity being created from the inside out, radiating outward, as opposed to having to be validated from external authorities. Well, in a sense, it was external from his father, but, but this identity that radiates is what we can warm our hearts by as we see Christ. It affects us. We become more like Christ. We become more sure of who we are and less anxious in our lives. And I believe that's what you want. That's what I want. Let's pray. Father, our ears are open wide to guzzle for us what you have to say to us in terms of our identity. We are desperate. Our anxiety is um, something we would want to have less of. We would want more of that sense of who we are, whose we are, that sense of love that is for people like us, imperfect people who are struggling, broken people who are hungry and thirsty for more of life. So Holy Spirit, come and show us Christ. Help us to listen to the words of Scripture and help us to see Christ for us, our identity. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Grow our longings for Him, His ways, to love Him more. In His name we pray. 
Jesus' name, amen.